If Bitcoin SV succeeds in the way its developers and entrepreneurs hope, it will be the biggest change in technology infrastructure since the mass adoption of the internet more than 20 years ago. How will ordinary users be open or resistant to that kind of change? That's what I want to find out this week from my guest, Lee Rainey, Director of Internet and Technology Research at the Pew Research Center, where he's been responsible for more than 650 reports based on Pew surveys of people's online and internet usage. He will be speaking at the Asia Blockchain Summit this week about public attitudes to blockchain. You're listening to CoinGeek Conversations with Charles Miller. So, uh, Lee, welcome to CoinGeek Conversations. Thanks so much, Charles. Well, I wanted to start off by talking about your latest report about the future of the internet. And in that, you have got the responses from about 700 experts uh, in the field about what they think is going to change in the next 10 years. And some of it is good news and some of it is bad news. But you have framed it in terms of what you call the tech lash, which is a kind of backlash to the success that technology has, has had uh, in, in affecting everyone's lives. So could you start off perhaps just by telling me how you see those problems that you describe as the tech clash? Sure. The center that I run at the Pew Research uh, Center in, in Washington has existed for 20 years. And when we first started studying the role of the internet in people's lives and then eventually uh, mobile connectivity in their lives, um, it, there was such hope attached to it. There was still this sort of romantic phase of people's thinking that the internet was going to democratize things, that it would give more people the opportunity to tell their stories and, and, and make their contributions to their cultures and their communities. But it's been really interesting to see in the past decade that uh, particularly as things like online harassment, concerns about privacy, uh, concerns about misinformation, fake information, the weaponization of information, sort of all of the info wars things that have been so prominent in the past five years. There has been a uh, retreat from the public enthusiasm uh, for the internet. So there, there are a cluster of issues now that are uh, top of mind for people as they're thinking about technology. It obviously took you some months to conduct this work. And I'm wondering whether could potentially be a little bit out of date because I would imagine that the increased reliance that we've all had to place on technology during lockdown as a result of the, the whole COVID crisis, that may have been quite a factor in changing people's attitudes, possibly in a, in a positive direction, do you think? I, again, I think that's a really smart observation. I think it's very clear, particularly in the developed world, that there's been this big turn to online activities using the internet and apps to literally conduct their lives. Um, and when we did a survey in the United States about this turn to technology, uh, more than half of American adults say that the internet has become essential in their lives. It is, it is a lifeline to the things that they need to do and want to do. But the, uh, there are also people who don't have that option. They work, they work in jobs where they physically have to show up and they engage with others in very tight quarters and in very consistent circumstances when they're delivering goods and services to them. 
Um, so that there's this new set of divisions that are also arising uh, around the internet. And I think one of the, the big open questions as we head into 2021 and even beyond that is what kind of uh, new divisions might emerge and whether they feel more acute to people. So you can see the people who say the internet is essential, you can see them thinking, uh, you know, whatever uh, the internet can allow me to do, I'm all in for it. Thank you very much. Uh, my concerns are a little bit diminished from the way they used to be pre-pandemic. And other people sort of saying, this is an option in my life. I, I, I love being online, but it's, it's not the way that I conduct my life. And so their concerns, for instance, about the power of technology companies might become even more pronounced. I mean, there's this big, interesting argument now that uh, in all kinds of industries, there's going to be consolidation. The powerful will be able to survive the economic downturn tied to the pandemic. And the ones that are a little more fragile or the, or the companies that are startups are just going to have a harder time. This is, a, of course, a huge issue in the blockchain community where innovation is the, is the watchword. And there are you know, so many startups, so many people attending the blockchain conference, you know, who are um, probably in pretty perilous circumstances are certainly worried about their futures. Well, yeah, so you are, in fact, uh, taking part in the Blockchain Asia conference. Um, presumably, are you doing that from home, or how is that going to work? Yeah, it's uh, it's all from home now. I was going to go to Taipei, but uh, that that uh, didn't happen. And what, what, is it possible to summarize your uh, the points that you're going to be making to that conference? How does what what is the overlap between the world of blockchain and and your research on on the internet? Our um, mandate from our funders, uh, big American charity, the Pew Charitable Trusts, is to look at the social impact of technologies. So, and we broadly define that as well to include economic and political impact of technology. So we're all about the sociology of technology, not necessarily the commercialization of it or the, or the highly technical part of it. So we're constantly um, talking in real time to people, doing surveys about the role of technology in their lives. Then this work where we talk to experts about the future tries to look around the corner to see where technology might be going. And that was the spirit of the um, work that we did that you're, that you're referencing here. So at the conference, my role was to be on a panel that was uh, talking about the, the, imp the social impact of technologies and the underlying thing that I think is so interesting in the blockchain world is uh, we live in an environment where people's trust in each other and people's trust in institutions is declining, particularly in the developed world. And so blockchain has been held out as a really interesting alternative way to rebuild trust, that using technology as the centerpiece of mediating uh, interactions between people, that if they go wrong, they go really wrong. If, you know, if some money problem develops between people, that's, that's a big deal. And so the starting point of blockchain is to try to make sure that uh, some of the worst actors in the culture actually don't get a chance to mess things up and some of the least uh, trustworthy uh, actors in the culture don't get their um, capacity don't have their capacity to um, to make more trouble so that's that, that the panel I was on was discussing how do we think about blockchain in the context of rebuilding trust particularly for public institutions you know some of the most interesting, applications of blockchain are not about cryptocurrencies, they're about 
um, trusted systems of documentation and smart contracts and and again, sort of mediating relationships in a in a trustworthy fashion. The part of the blockchain world that I'm uh, working in is to do with a uh, Bitcoin SV, Bitcoin Satoshi Vision, and um, whilst a lot of what you've just said would be relevant, the emphasis in 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 our corner of the of the world is that we shouldn't expect technology to be an alternative to a legal framework or just doing uh, anything that society requires. And I, I slightly wonder with what you're saying about the questions uh, about trust, whether historians will look back and say, yes, uh, trust in institutions, uh, as you said, was declining. And so the population had turned their, their trust to the one thing that they were fairly sure of, and that was computers. But, but that in the end, uh, human uh, institutions would need to, to be the ones that would be the ultimate uh, arbiters of trust. I would say that's exactly right. And that, that was sort of the big takeaway from the conversation that we were having at the, at the conference, that it, there, is a, there is a role for technology, as there is in all parts of life, to be the partner of human actors. In, in building uh, structures and context and rules of the road so that the technology can enact those rules of the road. But there's very much a, a co sort of co-creation and, and co-development element to this process of the exact kind that you're describing. This can't just be done by technology. You can't flip a switch and all of a sudden trust is restored and systems operate beautifully you need human actors to design those systems, monitor those systems, explain those systems, and uh, and that's this this sort of symbiotic relationship is the right one to focus on. Oh, I'm I'm glad to hear you say that. <laughs> um, just talking about the way in which new technologies are accepted in society, I just read a report by the uh, Financial Conduct Authority in the UK, uh, which has some figures saying that. Uh, seven in 10 members of the population have now heard of digital currencies, Bitcoin or whatever, and actually almost 4% own some as well. Now, just looking back on the way in which the mass adoption of the internet took place, I wondered whether you had a view as to whether we reach a kind of tipping point with an, a new technology uh, at which it so, sort of generally suddenly becomes accepted as opposed to just a sort of creeping step-by-step -step cumulative effect? Oh, there's a lot of research about um, when tipping points occur, and I don't think it has yet occurred with, uh, with, the, with blockchain technology. There are obviously applications that people are aware of and, uh, and uh, are appealing to them. But I think from a broad consumer marketplace uh, perspective, the, the, the technology yet ha certainly hasn't reached that um, that tipping point where it sort of takes off on a on a hockey stick curve of, uh, of adoption, but you could see how that would happen. I mean, you, you can sketch out a pretty credible scenario according to these experts that we talked to, where eventually that does became, become the case. And maybe it's related to uh, the way that uh, blockchain could amplify or or to could um, be a trust building mechanism for systems that are otherwise under assault. Uh, but it, it hasn't happened yet. And as a matter of fact, um, one of the questions I asked my fellow panelists um, 
was about um, what, what will be the killer app, assuming that, that crypt, you know, cryptocurrencies aren't yet, you know, they have their audience, they have their users, but they haven't yet sort of taken off as a mass adoption uh, um, proposition. What, what would be the killer app? And we couldn't, you know, really, we haven't yet come up with any great ones yet, although you can watch. I think, you know, in the context of your question, I, I could see a scenario, and, and certainly these experts could, where it, it is evolution. You know, it gradually gets embedded into systems, particularly uh, public institutions, for record keeping, for smart contracts and things like that, uh, and even for supply chain things, that eventually sort of propagates into the wider culture. But it, it'll, it won't be, um, it, well, it, po it possibly won't be sort of a big bang moment where all of a sudden a, a critical mass of people are using it and then the rest of the world says, oh, we've got to get on board. It might be, as you say, it might be more evolutionary. There is a hope, I think, amongst developers and entrepreneurs in this world that, yeah, maybe there won't be a killer app, but maybe this building uh, resentment against the existing uh, tech giants and their business model, particularly in relation to do I own my own data or is it being sold for their profit, that that might be a growing feeling that it's worth putting in a bit of effort to try and find an alternative to that, uh, even if it's a slightly abstract and maybe even a political motive behind, behind the change. I, uh, it's, it's, yeah, why not um, you know, hope, hope for that if you're building a company built, uh, built for that? Um, and it's, it's been so interesting. We do a lot of work related to privacy, and it's, and it's not uh, what well, we talk to experts about it, but there, you know, there are ways that regular citizens in standard uh, surveys and polls will talk about this. And the privacy story is a very complicated one and starting with the, the insight that our work produces, that it's very con context specific. People aren't sort of generalists about privacy. Either they want it all or they're happy to give away all their data for whatever you know, they're offered. They are very context and conditional in the way that they're thinking about the transaction. If it involves their health data, they're very protective and they say they have concerns and they are not happy that their health information might be known by third parties. When it comes to commercial activities, they're pretty uh, comfortable with, with the data collection process. They're confused about it. They're worried about how they might be profiled and those profile, uh, that information might be used against them. But they're generally marching forward with that in a way that suggests that they're sort of transactional. If I want to get to this website, at the moment I want to buy this thing or or see this content, they're pretty happy to click on the terms of, uh, and conditions of using the site without even reading them. So, so there's a very um, complicated and very nuanced story about privacy that is, is, is frustrating for researchers to try to figure out because we, you know, we as well as policymakers and even the people in the technology companies, they'd love to know where the bright lines are. You know, these are the lines you can stay. If you're on the right side of them, I'm happy to work with you. If you cross that line, I'll never work with you again. They would love to know that just as much as the policy community would like to know that. And again, sort of that line shifts depending on the person you're asking, depending on when you're asking, depending on what you're asking for, and depending on sort of the, the value proposition that you're offering them. So there, it, it's... It's a, yeah, privacy is a, is a fun thing to research, but it's, it's not necessarily yielding very uh, 
um, you know, solid, actionable results that uh, people in the blockchain community or anybody else can be taking to the bank. I think there may be another dichotomy involved in, in how people think about this, which is that they may be very against the use of their data in theory, but when it comes to looking up something on Google that they want to find the answer to, um, <laughs> they'll, they'll just go ahead and do it. And, and so yeah. there may be a difference between uh, one's views on the subject and one's behavior, which will actually work. I, I, with us. I mean, I, that's a great insight. And it's always been that way since we've been studying it for 20 years. <laughs> well, just going back to your uh, report about what the experts thought, just, just so people know, I've got a a list of who, who these sort of experts are. You've described them as technology innovators, developers, business and policy leaders, researchers and activists. So a broad range of people who are interested in the field. And yeah, we've um, built a, a, a database over the past 15 years of people who make public comments about technology, uh, who work in technology companies, who study it in the academy and, um, and have been doing future-oriented uh, surveys for, for a pretty long time. In this context, the, uh, the backdrop uh, actually was a TechLash backdrop. Uh, we asked uh, the question for this survey um, about this time last year, and there was such concern about the future of democracy and, and whether technology itself, through misinformation, through uh, you know, rewarding certain actors who don't behave well and things like that, that technology was going to potentially be enormously disruptive to democracy. And the tone of that uh, report was, there are lots of things to work on. So we asked the follow-up question in the survey, which is the one that we reported on in this most recent survey. Well, what do you, what do you think the prospects are for civic and social innovation that can address some of these problems? If you remember uh, back to the Industrial Revolution, you know, it, it was, um, it took a couple of decades into the Industrial Revolution to begin to see the problems that were occurring in factories, the problems that were occurring in the environment, the problems that were occurring tied to uh, urbanization. And, and you, so you began to see reforms about uh, workplace conditions and environmental conditions. And you began to see um, civil society forming groups that would allow people who had moved to the cities to have some sense of social solidarity in their communities. So our question sort of started from the premise that once concerns or once problems arise from a change in economic structures, like there is now in the information age, what kind of reforms might you get? And so this report sort of runs through how people think that social media might change. You might break up the companies or you certainly might get a lot more rulemaking around what kinds of content they can produce or not. You might get uh, reforms around privacy, literally the thing that you were talking about, people being able to control their data rather than just sort of handing it off to these technology companies without um, recompense or without a lot of say over how, how it's used. So anyway, that's, uh, that's, that's where we were coming from in this report. And I think on the whole, um, the sort of consensus among the experts was that, you know, it should, it's not all doom and gloom, that uh, actually... Uh, reforms could be introduced that would solve some of these problems. And, um, uh, well, going back to the blockchain uh, implications of that, to the extent that the tech giants are somewhat constrained by new laws uh, and, and rules and so on, that could uh, be a positive for the development of a, of a blockchain 
ecosystem alongside the existing one, perhaps. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And people, you know, very clearly made that argument that in an environment where um, information wars and all of the confusions and mistrust and bad acting that comes out of those environments, there, there, people very explicitly invoked how blockchain can um, be a restorative to people having confidence that um, their their data were treated well, that their um, interactions with other people were being um, chronicled and mediated in a responsible way, uh, that there were fewer opportunities for bad actors to step into the middle of the process and muck it up or abuse the process after the fact. So the, the blockchain was very um, consciously invoked by a whole lot of the experts that we cite in this in this um, canvassing to, as, a, as a solution or as a, an infrastructure for some of the solutions they were talking about. Um, and looking back over the, the sort of breadth of your studies of the internet, do you have any thoughts about uh, general points about the adoption of new technologies. Um, if the if the blockchain world develops to be potentially offering all sorts of interesting solutions, what does it need to do to persuade people that they should give that a try? It's there's such a hit or miss quality to a lot of um, the, this work, um, and one of the things that we asked in years gone by was whether these experts themselves felt confident about what the the new uh, big thing in technology was going to be five or 10 or 15 years into the future. And the vast majority said no. And the reason uh, that they we asked that question around 2010 or 2011, and a lot of them basically said, if you'd asked me this same question, you know, how predictable is technology innovation and adoption? If you'd asked me this question in the year 2000, I would not have had the idea of the smartphone in my head as I was answering the question. And yet seven years after, after that question would have been asked, this incredibly disruptive um, uh, technology would have come along to change the world. And so... That's why the killer app question is so interesting, because I, I, I don't think that cryptocurrencies yet stand uh, in the public imagination as the thing. Um, you know, if there's a collapse in the international monetary system, if there literally is a, a catastrophic loss of confidence in the underlying uh, financial systems, as you know, blockchain essentially was created as a response to the crisis of the, of the Great Recession. Um, you could, you know, again, sort of if, if things became catastrophic, you could see blockchain having a, an enormous breakout moment. Um, but it's hard to know when that might happen. I suppose it's possible that uh, blockchain takes off, but from a position where the everyday member of the public doesn't actually get to deal with it much. I mean, for instance, it, there could be great applications in supply chains or in uh, health records, perhaps, or... Um, behind the scenes in big financial institutions, and that the lessons will be learned there and, the, and the, the technology proved there, and then filtering through to an individual choosing a piece of music or something like that. It doesn't have to be the same model as the internet, I guess. Yeah, no, that's a great insight. Um, and um, 
we're anticipating in our general population survey work. We, for years, we have asked the question, are you an internet user? And people can answer that. They, you know, they know the hardware that they have to have in order to be an internet user. Uh, they are aware of the apps that they need to launch in order to be an internet user. Uh, and so that's an answerable question. Uh, and even in the uh, United States, there's 10% of people who say, no, I don't use the Internet. Well, you can skip forward just a few years from now, particularly as 5G rolls out and as the Internet of Things and smart devices and appliances and things like that come into the marketplace, people will be using the Internet without knowing it. Um, and so I, you, what you're suggesting, I think, is the same thing in the blockchain model. There will be ways in which people's finances absolutely are underpinned by blockchain technology. There are ways in which their interactions with government agencies, when they want to get a, uh, a national identity card for their newborn child, you know, that's going to be probably a blockchain system. But if you ask them in a survey, are you a blockchain user, they might not say yes. So uh, in a way, I, you know, I think the scenario you're outlining, that's why I think it, it you know, it, it makes a lot of sense to, to think in terms of evolution and think in terms of the background rather than the foreground of people consciously knowing when I'm doing this thing, I am using a technology called blockchain. Yeah, exactly. I think when we do get through to the consumer end of things, people will have to make a choice between, um, well, particularly in, in the Bitcoin SV system uh, where I work, there's a, a, a great potential for micropayments. And business models often will depend on rather than paying Netflix per month or whatever um, or many other services, you will be able to divide these up into tiny, tiny little fragments of payments and uh, which will give you much more choice over how much you're going to pay. And again, I think it does potentially come down to a, a question of psychology because I know that in when it comes to broadband, there have been some studies that show that people prefer to pay per month uh, than over per minute or whatever, even if they even if they end up paying more because they just are too worried about running up bills um, item by item. So I'm wondering whether that could be a bit of a hurdle when when we come to mass adoption of uh, blockchain services. Yeah, um, but in in the way that you're describing it. Um, I don't want to minimize the challenge of speaking to the public about this, but you could see really smart marketers sort of turning this to uh, an advantage, just sort of say, look, here's who we are, here's who our competitors are, we use a system that looks like this and is undergirded by you know trust mechanisms that are unbreakable and um, unhackable and visible um, in ways that you could never imagine uh, at this other institution. And so you could see that um, it, it might you know, be a sales point or a competitive advantage point um, in the consumer marketplace at, at some point. It's just, uh, you know, I don't see anybody doing that at the moment. Um, so it's, it's in the future if it's going to happen. <laughs> Well, there are some, there are plenty of startups actually on Bitcoin SV that are doing that at the moment, and so we'll we'll see how they develop. But, uh, okay, Lee, thank you so much for talking to me. It's been really, really interesting, and um, good luck with, with with your work. Thank you so much. It's been great to talk, Charles. Thanks, thanks, and bye now. Bye now. 
My thanks to Lee Rainey of the Pew Research Center. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like, share, or subscribe. And please join me, Charles Miller, next week for another CoinGeek conversation. Till then, goodbye.